Now, in Revelation chapter 7, we are, as it is so often the case as we go through the Bible, we're picking it up sort of in the middle of a story. And the account, as John has described it for us, began back in Revelation chapter 4, where he was taken up in spirit into the heavenly places. And as he was there before the throne of God, he saw this majestic scene of of worship and praise and and adulation unto the king of kings. But then in chapter 5, we saw a unique problem introduced. And the problem simply being this, there was a scroll held in the right hand of God. And no one was worthy to open the scroll or to unloose the seals that held the scroll shut until the Lamb of God came forward. And he was the one worthy. He was the one with the power and the authority to unlock that scroll, which we believe, we can't say it with complete certainty because the text doesn't tell us itself, but we infer that it's the disposition of of human history, of human events. It's the culmination of God's purpose in creation. And who's able, who's worthy to unfold that and to bring that forth? Well, it's no angel, it's no man. It's the Lord God himself. It's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we saw last week that as this scroll had its seals loosed, one seal and the second seal and the third seal, we had an incredible amount of calamity and destruction and judgment coming upon the earth. In other words, before the account of earth and human history can be settled, before the book can be finished, before the the book can be closed, so to speak, there's going to come great tribulation, as the Bible says. Jesus described this period of great tribulation in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, as a time so terrible that there had never been a more terrible time in human history and there never will be a more terrible time. Which is a very sobering, sobering statement. Well, we waited with great anticipation through Revelation chapter 6 because the scroll was bound with seven seals. And we remind ourselves that the seals were glued upon the scroll in a way that required that each one of the seven seals be loosed before the scroll could be opened. In other words, it wasn't that you could loose one scroll and open a little bit and loose another seal, excuse me, and open a little bit more. All seven seals had to be taken off before the scroll could be opened. And so we saw one seal, and then the second seal, and the third seal. And then by the time we got to the sixth seal, there was great cosmic disturbance, and the earth was on the very edge of the return of Jesus, and the culmination of all human history, and the revelation of the disposition of all history. Then there's a great pause in chapter 7. And we're just a little bit frustrated, thank you very much. I mean, we had such anticipation through the first six seals. And it's like, come on, rip off that seventh seal. Let's go for it. But then we come to a pause. Six seals taken off and then a pause. But this pause is very important because it describes for us significant events and significant people from this period of great tribulation. Let's remember that in this description of the seals so far, the first, second, third, all the way through the sixth sixth seal, it all describes this incredible calamity coming upon the earth. Well, in the midst of that calamity, God's doing a great work. You know, sometimes we wonder about that, don't we? But in the midst of judgment, God still does a tremendous work as we're going to see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. What we have in chapter 7 is a very Hebraic way of writing and thinking. We've gone through the six seals of chapter 6. Now we've reround a little bit. 
Now we're at this time before this great tribulation hits and before the great tribulation comes upon the earth. If you notice in verse 3, it says, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we've done something. It says, before that calamity comes, certain people are going to be sealed as servants of God with a seal set upon their forehead. Of course, we notice, first of all, in verse 1, where it described four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. There are some difficult passages in the Bible. There are some places that are hard to explain and that the Bible student really needs to buckle down and try to understand. What I've noticed is that critics of the Bible never seem to latch on to the truly difficult passages of Scripture. They always quote passages like this and expose their own ignorance by saying, well, see what a fairy tale book the Bible is? They must have thought that the earth was flat. It describes the four corners of the earth. And they think they've got one over on God or the Bible and what an ignorant piece of superstition it is. You know, you'll have to do a lot better than that if you're going to try to poke a hole in the veracity of the Bible. To say the four corners of the earth is simply to use an ancient and sometimes modern equivalent to the idea of the four points of the compass. The idea is that these angels affect the entire earth. Friends, you know, we still talk about sunrise and sunset. Oh, how unscientific we are. We should really note that the sun doesn't move at all, but actually it's the earth rise and the earth set. But we don't talk that way, do we? Of course, we know the Bible uses figures of speech. And when it describes four angels standing at the four corners of heaven, yes, it's not scientifically accurate, but everybody knows what it means. There's no doubt at all. It's literary, in its literary sense, it's brilliant. It's using a, a very compact expression of speech that lets everybody know what you're talking about. So there they were, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. Now, Oftentimes, in the Old Testament prophets, and let's remember that the book of Revelation is a book deeply rooted in the prophecies of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament prophets, so often, winds are a destructive force of God's judgment. Let me give you an example from Hosea chapter 13, where we read, Though he is fruitful among his brethren... An east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come from the wilderness. Then his spring will become dry and his fountain shall be dried up. You see there, the wind is used as an emblem, as a messenger, as a vehicle of God's judgment. And so here we see judgment about to come upon the earth. By the way, to come upon the whole earth, right? Because it's four angels at the four corners of the earth with the four winds under heaven. It's comprehensive in its judgment. And this angel comes down before this happens, verse 2, ascending from the east, and he has the seal of the living God. Now, in the ancient world, it was very common for a man of any substantial property at all, or a king or a ruler of some kind, to have his own seal. And he identified things by placing his own seal upon it. We think, of course, the great signet ring, you know, the seal, and put into a blob of wax. Well, that's kind of the idea there. And so they used the seal to show ownership or authenticity. Well, this is the seal of the living God. And before this destructive judgment is loosed upon the earth, a cry goes out to an angel saying, listen, don't do anything with this judgment. Don't unleash it until these servants of God receive the protective seal upon their forehead. Look at it again here, verse 3. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And we can say that this seal is in some manner containing the name of God. Now, I don't mean to jump the gun here on Revelation chapter 7, but it describes a group of people who are connected and also described in Revelation chapter 14. So I'd like you to turn over there. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, and you'll hear another description of this seal. 
It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. See, chapter 7 describes what's on their forehead as a seal, and chapter 14 describes what's on their forehead as their father's name. Well, of course, it doesn't contradict itself. It's just saying, in some measure, that seal is the name of God. By the way, it's interesting, as you look in the pages of the Old Testament, for an example where a seal, a protective seal, is given to the people of God. In Ezekiel chapter 9, A very similar protective seal is given to the righteous before Jerusalem will be judged. And the seal is the Hebrew letter Tau, which is basically shaped like a lowercase t. In other words, in the shape of a cross. Isn't that interesting? That that's how God would put a seal on people's foreheads in the book of Ezekiel chapter 9 before the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, here we have some similar kind of seal. It's a similar idea. And who are these that are sealed? Look at it here in verse 3. It says, Till we have sealed the servants of our God. Now, we're not told exactly what the service of these people, of whom later on we're going to be told there's 144,000 of them, and so you'll hear me commonly referring to them tonight as the 144,000. We don't know exactly what the work is of these 144,000, but their, their first title, their first designation is the servants of our God. They're sealed for a specific and a unique purpose. We need to understand, though, that the idea of being sealed is not limited to the 144,000. Do you know that Jesus was sealed? John chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus said, God the Father has set his seal on me. And of course, we are sealed. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our eventual redemption. Paul wrote, God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Isn't that beautiful? We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he's given it to us as a guarantee, as a down payment. You know the whole idea of a down payment, don't you? It's money that you put down to say, I'm going to come back and completely buy this thing. Now, you can say that the item in fact, belongs to you when you put the down payment on it. You just haven't taken it in your possession yet. And that's what God's done with us, right? He's put a down payment on his people. You want the down payment? It's the Holy Spirit of God. You know how beautiful and how powerful and how sweet the moving of the Holy Spirit is, don't you? You know the incredible glory and just it's almost a a carrying away experience sometimes when the holy spirit is moving richly in our hearts i want you to think about it for a moment that's just the down payment think about what's going to be like when the whole thing is paid in full and this sealing of the holy spirit belongs to every believer when they're saved ephesians chapter 1 says that having believed you were sealed with the holy spirit of promise So we have a seal upon us as believers, yet these 144,000 described in the book of Revelation chapter 7 have a specific seal placed upon them. Well, here in verse 4, we have described for us the number of those sealed. It says, verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. You get the idea? 12,000 from each tribe. Their general identification is that they are of the children of Israel. But then they are each given a specific tribal designation. And of the 144,000, 12,000 belong to 12 different tribes. 
Now, we must say, and uh, of course this is uh, one of the huge dividing lines you have, and you can tell a lot uh, about the way that somebody will interpret the book of Revelation just by how they identify the 144,000. Do they, invi- do they uh, regard them as a symbolic people or a real people? Very commonly, commentators will say, well, 12 is the number of government, 12 times 12, it's God's perfect government, perfect administration. This isn't a literal 144,000 or 12,000 from each tribe. Uh, it's just people, and it's just describing a great multitude under the perfection of God's government. Well, I believe that there's a purpose in the 12 times 12. But I have no trouble whatsoever saying that when it says 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, it means 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. Why not? What, is God limited in that? Well, some people say, well, you know, it's impossible to know their tribal designations. How could anybody look those records up? They've been destroyed long, long time ago. By the way, it is very interesting to note that in this interest that a few in Israel have in rebuilding the temple, that they've done DNA research to try to determine who is of authentic priestly lineage. And they feel that they can determine it with incredible certainty through DNA research. But beyond all that, maybe a person can't know their tribal lineage. God knows. What, are you telling me that when God looks down from heaven and looks at somebody who's of Jewish descent, that he doesn't look upon them and know exactly what tribe they're descended from? He knows. It doesn't mean that necessarily the 144,000 each wear name badges. Hi, I'm from the tribe of Judah. They may not know their tribal designation, but God knows it. I have no problem whatsoever saying that this is a literal 144,000 and a literal 12,000 from each one of these 12 tribes. Now, I'm going to embark on something that I hope I don't lose you on because... Though this is interesting to me, your eyes may glaze over in a few minutes. I think it's very interesting, this pattern of the arranging of the 12 tribes here. First of all, there's a tribe missing. The tribe of Dan is not mentioned at all. Now, why is the tribe of Dan left out? Well, there's a classical ancient understanding of this that says that the tribe of Dan is left out based on Daniel chapter 11 verse 37 and Jeremiah 8:16, which have led some people to believe that the Antichrist will himself be of Jewish lineage and will come from the tribe of Dan. That may or may not be the case. It's a, it's a touch speculative. Certainly it's a possibility, but we can't say that it's certainly so from the scriptures. Whether or not that's the case, we can certainly say that the tribe of Dan was the tribe which introduced chronic idolatry into Israel. We know that from the book of Judges, chapter 18. And perhaps it's because of that ancient connection that the tribe of Dan was the gateway to which this chronic idolatry confronted the people of Israel that God excluded them from the 144,000. Although I have to say that there's a wonderful redemption for the tribe of Dan. You see, we have prophetically described for us in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 48, a listing of tribes in the millennium. It's the millennial roll call of the tribes. And you know which tribe is mentioned first? The tribe of Dan. Isn't that beautiful? Example of God's redemptive power. There's something else Interesting to me, at least, and maybe I'll just talk to myself about it for a moment, and you can overhear. It's the fact that the tribe of Ephraim is slighted. Now, the tribe of Ephraim is mentioned in verses 5 through 8, but in a backhand way. You can look at all the names of the tribe, and you'll never see the name Ephraim. But it's there, again, in a backhand way. Because if you notice in verse 8, the tribe of Joseph is mentioned. Now, isn't that interesting? You never hear about the tribe of Joseph, do you? That's because the tribe of Joseph was actually two tribes. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Well, Manasseh is mentioned in verse 6. 
So if you've already mentioned Manasseh, and then you say the tribe of Joseph, by the principle of exclusion, you must be referring to Ephraim when you say Joseph. But you don't want to say Ephraim. You're giving Ephraim a little slap with the back of your hand. You're in, but I'm not going to name you. Now, why was Ephraim slighted? Well, again, perhaps we can base this on a passage such as Hosea 4.17. The tribe of Ephraim was associated with chronic and severe idolatry in the land of Israel. Now, many different people, when they look at this listing of the 144,000 and the 12,000 from among these tribes, they claim that the list must be purely symbolic because it's irregular, right? You don't have a listing of the tribe of Dan. You mention the tribe of Joseph. It's not ordered the way other lists are in the Old Testament. And so they're saying, surely this means that it's just symbolic. Well, I don't think so. I would simply ask you, what is a regular listing of the tribes? You go through the Old Testament and you notice that there are not less than 20 different ways that the tribes of Israel are listed, including one in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 uh, through chapter 7, which omits the tribe of Dan. So it's not that uncommon. And just because a list is different doesn't mean that it's fanciful symbolism. It's proper to regard each one of these lists in the Bible as legitimate and to understand that each specific variation serves a purpose, meaning to emphasize something. But that brings us back to the question here, well, if there's these 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, then who are these 144,000? Are you aware that many different groups have claimed to be the 144,000? For example, at one time in their history, Jehovah's Witnesses claimed to be the 144,000. As they were started by Charles Taze Russell in their early days, they looked at a passage like this and they said, that's us. We're the specially chosen one. We're the 144,000. But then as the years went on, there came up a little problem. There got to be more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. So what do you do with that? Well, what do you know? New light came. And the new light said that the 144,000 among the Jehovah's Witnesses were the elite followers of Jehovah. And they were the ones who get to go to heaven. The rest of the rank and file of Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't get to go to heaven. Oh, no, they stay on earth, but they don't go to heaven. Only the 144,000. It's kind of interesting, too, because... They regard the 144,000, this select group of people, this little flock, they regard them as the only ones worthy to receive communion. Jehovah's Witnesses receive communion once a year. And as the bread and the cups are being passed about, everybody very nervously looks at one another to see if someone will actually have the gall to eat of the bread and take of the cup. Because, well, there are just a handful of those who claim to be of the 144,000 among Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, it's a very rare number. And at most communion services at Kingdom Halls, nobody takes of the bread or the cup. They're very keen on inviting outsiders to come to this special memorial service, as they call it. I've always thought that I should accept the invitation sometime and take communion. Say, listen, I don't know about any of this 144,000 mumbo-jumbo, but Jesus said, take and eat. So I'm going to take and eat. In any regard, most biblical scholars regard the 144,000 as one of two possibilities. These are the two majority opinions. Most of them identify the 144,000 as either the church or as converted Jewish believers who are still identified as Israelites, at least in their lineage. Now, it's a very important issue because there's one thing that we can say about the 144,000. They are on the earth during the Great Tribulation. And if they're the church, then the church is on earth during the Great Tribulation. They're sealed for survival through the Great Tribulation. 
but they're certainly there enduring it. Well, how do we know who the 144,000 are? Are they the church, or are they uh, Jewish believers still identified with Israel in some way? Well, let's just take a look at some facts about the 144,000 from Revelation chapter 7 and from Revelation chapter 14. Are you ready? Well, first of all, look at verse uh, 4 in chapter 7. They're called what? The children of Israel. They are of the children of Israel. Now, friends, I, I can't say this with conclusive proof, but it certainly doesn't come to my mind one single instance where the church is called the children of Israel. But these are called the children of Israel. We see that in verses 5 through 8, they are given a specific tribal affiliation. And while there are a few instances where the church is associated with Israel in the New Testament, never are Christians associated with any specific tribe. If we notice in chapter 14, and I'll ask you to turn over, turn right a few pages in your Bible to Revelation 14. In verse 1, they seem to be protected and triumphant through the period of God's wrath, meeting with Jesus at Mount Zion at his return. Look at it there. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having uh, his father's name written on their foreheads. So they're protected through the Great Tribulation. We know from verse 4 of Revelation 14 that they're celibate. We know that they are also the beginning of a great harvest. Look at it here in verse 4. It says at the end of the verse, These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and of the Lamb. Well, what does it mean that they were first fruits? Well, the first fruits in ancient Israel was the beginning of harvest that was taken and dedicated to God in anticipation of a greater harvest. We also know from verse 5 that they are marked by integrity and faithfulness. Now, if you take all these things together, any one of them might say, well, it's the church. Look at it here. They're celibate, and we know that some are called to celibacy in the church, or they're marked by integrity and faithfulness, and we would hope that God could find 144,000 among the church marked by integrity and faithfulness. But friends, when we take all of these facts together, it's difficult to say that the 144,000 are a symbolic picture of the church, because after all, Israel is a term never specifically applied to the church in the New Testament. And their tribal affiliation is emphatic, and it's known to God. By the way, it's also difficult to imagine the entire church surviving through the tribulation without martyrdom. How many of the 144,000 make it to the end of the tribulation and stand with the Lamb of God on top of Mount Zion? Look at verse 1 of Revelation 14. How many? 144,000 of them. That means that not one of them is lost to martyrdom. They all make it. Now, here's the other thing. We know that the 144,000 are the first fruits of something bigger. Well, if the 144,000 are a symbol of the church, then what are they the first fruits of? What greater harvest do they represent? There's no, the church is the harvest. It is the harvest. So they can't represent the church being a greater harvest. No, my friends, it's best to see the 144,000 as specifically chosen Jewish believers in Jesus, protectively sealed through the tribulation as a sign. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans and in the book of Matthew that the Jewish people will turn their hearts towards Jesus, the Messiah, before the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And that will happen, by and large, through the Great Tribulation. Friends, do you remember when Jesus was in Jerusalem on the final week before his passion and his crucifixion? Do you remember that as he sat on a bluff on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem, that, that he cried out with all the emotion in his heart, and he said, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus Christ returns again to Jerusalem in triumph and glory, the Jewish people will welcome him as their Messiah. Now I have to say something. 
As you look at it right now, that's a fantastic thing to say, isn't it? Taken as a whole, the Jewish people are not running to accept Jesus. Although we have to say it is remarkable to see the advances in evangelism among the Jewish people uh, in the last several decades. It's been a remarkable blessing and a remarkable increase in the number of Jewish people coming to faith, some known in our own congregation, and it's a glorious thing. However, we still must say that as a whole, the Jewish people are not at this place, and you look at this problem and say, no way. Well, I say Yahweh. God will do it. God will do it because that's the kind of God he is. And before the Jesus Christ comes again, the, 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 the nation of Israel will be welcoming him. Now, it doesn't mean that every last person of Jewish lineage will receive Jesus Christ. No, but it means as a whole, the Jewish people will be a Christ accepting people, not a Christ rejecting So friends, that's a precious thing, and that's why we see why the 144,000 is this first fruits of the the greater harvest to come. What's the greater harvest? The, The greater harvest is the evangelization of the Jewish people as a whole. And if you look at it as well, here, in back to Revelation chapter 7, we see in chapter 7, verse 4, that they are, excuse me, we saw this in verse 3, that they are the servants of our God. These 144,000 are unique servants of God, specially protected, specially empowered in some way. I've heard them described as 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams given to the uh, you know, uh, world and given especially to the nation of Israel in the last days. And I believe it. I believe that they will be a marvelous, marvelous force for the salvation of the Jewish people and even broader beyond that in the last days. Now, if you want to look at a connection here as we transition into verse 9 of Revelation 7, we see perhaps what is the efforts or the fruit of their evangelism. Look at it here, verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with ripe robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't it marvelous to see the diversity before the throne of God? And by the way, verse 9 is evidence for us that the Great Commission, the command that Jesus gave to the church, to go out and preach the gospel unto the every ends of the earth. And so every nation and every tongue hears it. This will be fulfilled because there will be people saved from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation under heaven. You know what I think is wonderful about this? Is John could look at this multitude and he noticed that they were from different nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. You know what that means? We're not all going to be the same in heaven. There's going to be individuality in heaven. We're not going to be, you know, just sort of this cookie cutter kind of thing or, or Stepford people or Pod people or something like that. We will retain our individual character and our individual... I mean, there, there will be, I take it from this, different races in heaven, different peoples, different uh, nationalities. It'll, there will be a marvelous, beautiful diversity in heaven. I think we have an echo of understanding of what God wants to do on this earth, too. You know, sometimes I chafe when I feel that Christians expect all Christians to be just exactly alike. You know, and we're not. You're different than I am, and, and that's how it should be. And, and this person's different from that person, and there's a beautiful diversity, a beautiful unity in Christ, but diversity and in individuality of who we are in uh, the body of Christ, and that will continue in heaven, too. Here's something else to recognize. It means we're going to see and perceive each other's differences in heaven. You will know other people as individuals in heaven. Sometimes people wonder about that. They they say, well, you know, are are we going to know each other in heaven? Are we going to know each other as individuals? And I I simply have a question for you. Do you think you're going to be dumber in heaven than you are now? Of course not. You'll, you'll know who people are. 
I mean, when, when uh, matter of fact, you probably have an instant recognition of who they are. A supernatural gift. When, when Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, the disciples knew exactly who was up there. And I take it they had never seen Moses and Elijah before. But they, that's Moses. They knew it. I don't think they were wearing big name tags. Hi, I'm Moses. You know, greetings, Elijah, it said on it. No, no. I think we'll just know. The other thing we notice about this great multitude here in verse 9 is that they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Isn't it interesting? We come back to this time and time again. John is obsessed with the throne of God. Everything he describes, he describes in reference to the throne. And then we notice again that this multitude is clothed with white robes, that they wave palm branches, which are emblems of victory, and they cry out, verse 10, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now notice here, their worship prompts worship from other people. Verse 11, And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We've noticed this again in heaven. It seems that praise is contagious, isn't it? Once one group is worshiping, then the other group starts worshiping. And so if it's the redeemed worshiping, then the angels will join in. Or if it's the angels, well, then the redeemed are going to join in. And they attribute to God blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Look at it here in verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, it was important for John to know who this multitude was. But apparently he wasn't asking. So the elder asked him. John said, Well, I don't know. You tell me. And the elder said, I'm glad you asked. He says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. This vast multitude from every tribe, every tongue and nation are those rescued from God's, for God's kingdom during this period of the great tribulation. Now, in the grammar of this phrase here in verse 14, where it says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. In the ancient Greek grammar, The word the in the great tribulation is emphatic. It's the great tribulation. This was a time of great tribulation for this multitude. And this has led most people to believe that most, if not all, of this great multitude are martyrs from the great tribulation. Now, don't we stand in awe of this? that the presence of so many tribulation saints, and what a powerful statement that is of God's grace and mercy, in the most horrific time of judgment and the pouring out of God's wrath from heaven to earth that the earth will ever see this, this time of great tribulation, in the midst of it, so God's hand of salvation is drawn out towards man and receiving as many as will come. Now again, let's not forget as well that we're in the same context as the 144,000. And so many people see the work of the 144,000 at least contextually connected with this. In other words, they they have a connection with this. And and not only are the 144,000 evangelists unto Israel, but unto the whole world. But I have to say I really like what it says about these great multitude before the throne of God at the end of verse 14. It says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. First of all, we're struck by the idea of something being made white by being washed in blood. That's not the way it usually works, is it? The wisdom of the cross is foolishness with man. But what's amazing about this is, friends, these are martyrs, right? 
These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've, they've been martyred. They've, they've come out of this great tribulation, and, and they have this, this incredible experience of, of martyrdom and sacrifice for the sake of the Lord. Even if they are martyred, their martyrdom does not save them. Only the work of Jesus can cleanse and save. Do you understand that? I mean, you could die for Jesus Christ. Right now, the, the doors burst open and a crazed gunman walks in and he, he very calmly announces, I'm going to shoot anybody who will make a stand for Jesus Christ. And let's say every one of us is bold enough that we choke down the tears and we stand bravely and we, well, we endure this for Christ and we all die martyrs' deaths in a very dramatic and heroic fashion. That doesn't save you. I mean, it's the ultimate sacrifice, right? It doesn't save you, friends. The greatest sacrifice you could ever make is insufficient to save you. Now, do you see how foolishness and perhaps even offensive it is to God for people to think that church attendance will save them? Friends, laying down your life for God won't save you. Only the work of Jesus can that's what, you think that uh, making marks on a brownie chart, a brownie point chart up in heaven's going to save you? Not a chance. No, it's only the work of Jesus. So look here, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. It says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't it beautiful? Look at it there in verse 15. Where is this great multitude located? Before the throne of God. He almost wanted to shake John, lighten up a little bit. Everything is described according to the throne of God. Friends, it tells us that in heaven, the redeemed enjoy the immediate presence of God. They can come right into the throne room and be with God. There's no barriers, no waiting lists, no maitre d' standing at the velvet rope, admitting a few and keeping out many others. No. Friends, these saints knew affliction on earth, and they triumphed over it. But it wasn't their affliction that saved them. It was Jesus and their relationship of faith with them. And now they're brought in before the throne of God. And what do they do? Look at it here, verse 15. And they serve him day and night in his temple. In heaven, the redeemed serve God. Friends, heaven is not a place of indolent leisure. It's not kickback time. Back on a cloud, stroking a harp, watching an angel fly by. Heaven's a place of service. Look at it there. Verse 15, they serve him day and night in his temple. Now, I can't say exactly how, I can, but if your idea of heaven is just kickback time for all of eternity, you're going to be disappointed. And friends, you would be disappointed if heaven was like that. God has put within us the desire to work, the desire to achieve. And yes, it's been corrupted by the fall, hasn't it? It is by the sweat of our brow that we eat our bread. And there are thorns that grow up to the earth that, 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 that prick and mar the, the, the work that God has given us to do. But in heaven, that work, that service, will be liberated from the curse. Serve him day and night. But the most precious thing, look at the end of verse 15. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. That's what makes heaven heaven. The presence of Jesus there, the presence of God himself there. It's not a location, it's not streets of gold, it's not pearly gates, it's not even a, a particular throne. It's the one who sits on the throne. That's what makes it a throne, the person who sits on it. Remember David's great desire in Psalm 27? One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. 
You know, David said that he'd rather be a doorkeeper in God's temple than have the most exalted place among men. You know, the funny thing about it was David couldn't be a doorkeeper in the temple. He wasn't of the priestly lineage. He was a king. He was of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of the Levites. David said, listen, I'd be happy being the lowliest priest just to be closer to God. In heaven, all those limitations are taken away. David's joy is fulfilled, and so will be the joy of every believer. Let's look at it there. Verse 17. The Lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. In heaven, the redeemed will know the loving care and nurture of their Savior. He'll protect them from every affliction, right? They'll neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. And he'll also provide for their every need. It says he'll lead them to the living fountains of waters. Now, when it says that he will shepherd them, I mean, doesn't Jesus shepherd us now? Yes, he does. And yes, he's close and he cares for us now. But in heaven, it'll be so much more. You know, the the shepherding care and comfort and blessing that the Lord gives you now, right? That's kind of like the chalk outline, the, the, the little outline done in charcoal or the rough sketch. You get a picture of it. You get the image of it, the impression of it. Oh, but friends in heaven, it'll be filled in. Not just all in living color, but in 3D, 4D, 5D, who knows? It'll be far beyond our conception. And then finally, it says at the end of verse 17, sort of like the final bow on this beautiful picture. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Plainly speaking, in heaven, the redeemed will know no more sorrow, no more pain. The the struggle and and the hurt of this earthly life, they're gone. They're a thing of the past. Because God will wipe away every tear. You think of that, don't you? Of a, of a mother's loving hand wiping away the tears from a child's face. God loves us with that kind of nurturing care. Now, we also understand from this that every tear will only be wiped away in heaven. Don't look for this promise to be realized on earth, friends. This is a promise reserved for heaven. And yes, on this earth, we have our share of pain and tears to endure and to bring to God. He shows his love now to us in sweet consolation and in strength through our tears. But one day in heaven, not now, one day he'll wipe them away forever. Now, might I say that this passage does not have the idea that in heaven will weep over our wasted life or unconfessed sin. Preachers are experts at using verses like this. They lay the guilt and the condemnation. You've lived such a wasted life for the Lord that when you peer before him before his throne, you'll be bawling your eyes out in the shame and in the humiliation of what a miserable Christian life you've lived, you wretched worm. But God will wipe away those tears as sort of a throwaway line that they give. No, friends, the point is that the grief and tears of the past, speaking specifically of their trials and the tribulation, they're gone. God will wipe away all the tears resulting from our suffering on this earth. Many people have wondered, how can there be no sorrow in heaven if we have friends or loved ones who perhaps will perish in hell? Won't we be sorry for them? Let me read to you from Charles Spurgeon. He says, now how is this? If you will tell me, I shall be glad, for I cannot tell you. I do not believe that there will be one atom less tenderness, that there will be one fraction less amiability and love and sympathy. I believe there will be more. But they will be in some way so refined and purified that while compassion for suffering is there, the detestation of sin shall be there to balance it, and a state of complete equilibrium shall be attained. Perfect acceptance in the divine will is probably the secret of it. But it's not my business to guess. 
I do not know what handkerchief the Lord will use, but I do know that he'll wipe away all the tears from their faces and all the tears from their eyes. I don't know what handkerchief God will use, folks, but he'll do it. And that's his promise for us. Now, as we come to the end of Revelation 7, we've almost forgot about the seventh seal, haven't we? I mean, we were building on it with such anticipation through chapter 6, and then, whoa, it stops, and there's a break, and there's the 144,000, here's the great multitude, and there they are. Chapter 8, next week, we come to the seventh seal. And wait till you see what happens when the seventh seal comes off. Then you got more things coming, but we'll check it out next week. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that tonight you'd offer to our hearts such sweet consolation. Lord, the work that you want to do right now is a sketched outline of what you will one day perfect in heaven. And Lord, so while we do not expect that we will have no tears on earth, we do expect that you give us sweet consolation and comfort. And Lord, maybe there's a hurting heart here tonight that you would extend that touch of heaven to them on earth right now. But Father, for our part, we ask for the courage and the tenacity to live as witnesses for you. You've sealed us, you've equipped us. Even though we are not of this company of the 144,000, we can imitate their passion and their, their service of you. Help us to do that, Lord, tonight. And as we leave from this place, in Jesus' name, amen.